Well, good morning, Gresham Bible Church. Good to see everybody. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Jordan. Again, missed uh, being together last week, last week, right, with the snow and the ice, but we're here together again. And if you haven't already done so, the passage that Jordan read for us, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 8 and go all the way through chapter 6. So make sure to have God's Word in front of you as we're going to walk through this together. And the title of our sermon today is going to be The Satisfaction Problem. I wonder for those of you that are married, if you can remember this, when was the first time you had a significant argument, let's say fight, right, with your spouse? When was that and what, that, what was that all about? For my wife and I, for Carrie and I, we got married really young. We got married after my senior year of college at George Fox, after Carrie's junior year, and for our honeymoon, we traveled to Hawaii. We were able to do that thanks to the generosity of both of our parents. So this is kind of the backdrop for I'm setting up when our first fight is, right? It's going to be in Hawaii on our honeymoon. And so because of this situation, we went to lots of really fancy restaurants in Hawaii. Fancy restaurants that had value meals, like Jack in the Box and Subway, okay? So that's the setting for when our first fight is going to be. So Carrie and I were sitting down to eat this delicious Subway sandwich together on a beautiful Hawaii day, and then Carrie very lovingly teased me, okay? So when I'm telling this story, this is a me problem. This is nothing towards Carrie, right? So Carrie lovingly teased me. She said, Mike, I think your eyes are bigger than your stomach, And I was like, what is this all about? My new wife here on our honeymoon says my eyes are bigger than my stomach? Well, really, she was right. And she was just lovingly teasing me, and I took it the wrong way, because my appetite really was broken. The appetite of my eyes and the appetite of my stomach wasn't really going to be satisfied no matter how many toppings that are free at Subway I put on top of my sandwich, right? So my appetite was the problem. Well, that time in Hawaii, it's going to function for us today like a little bit of an echo of what we're going to see here in our text in Ecclesiastes today, what we're going to explore together from our passage. So as we know, during our time in Ecclesiastes, I don't know about you, I've been so encouraged and challenged by the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in God's Word for a reason. And we've seen God speak to us about the vanity of life, that all that is done under the sun is really chasing after wind. We've seen that life is like a breath, here today and gone tomorrow. That our pursuits are really, when you picture it, it's like trying to grasp the air. And in our passage today, we're going to see the preacher of Ecclesiastes bring us to wealth and honor, to riches and power. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to show us They're just as vain, chasing after wind. So before we start today, let me pray for us. Father God, we need you. We need to hear from you today through your word. Give us eyes to see and hearts to hear beautiful and wonderful things from your word. Father, please, through the preaching of your word today, may you comfort and strengthen where needed. May you bring conviction where needed. And may your name be glorified in all of it. Lift our eyes from ourselves to you and increase our joy and satisfaction in you. Open your word to us this morning and open us to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, put your finger on the text in front of you or the screen in front of you and let's dive into Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 8, 
verse 8 all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. So here's where we're going today. Three parts, because that's what you're supposed to do, I guess. So three things. Chapter 5, verse 8 through 20, is power and wealth are never satisfied. The second point of emphasis is going to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, and that's the appetite is never satisfied. And then lastly, in verses 10 and 12, at the end of chapter 6, we're going to see what will satisfy. So first, power and wealth are never satisfied. Look what the preacher says and where he's taking us here in verses 8 through 20. The word money and the idea of riches or gain, it saturates these verses in chapter 5. The concept of money or wealth is mentioned 10 times in this relatively short section. In verses 8 and 9, the preacher says we're not to be amazed, we're not to be surprised when we see injustice and oppression in the world. Then the preacher fixes our gaze on the vanity of wealth. So remember again in Ecclesiastes, let's just make sure we're on the same page, that vanity is not just the idea of meaninglessness, right? Ecclesiastes is talking about vanity is really, it's, it's a vapor of life, that life is a breath. It's here today and gone tomorrow. That everything that we reach out to, according to the preacher in, in Ecclesiastes, for meaning or satisfaction in life, what we try to grasp onto for significance or satisfaction is just a fleeting breath, like trying to grasp a puff of smoke in your hand. And then again, in our text, the preacher is going to focus on our attention that, that wealth is vanity, that wealth is a vapor, a breath that doesn't satisfy. So we have a really large text. I want to ground us in two verses in this first part in chapter 5, verse 10 and verse 16. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. So in other words, the preacher here is saying, the more you have, the more you'll want. And the more you have, the less you're actually satisfied. Or like a modern prophet once said, mo' money, mo' problems. Then in verse 16, it says this, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? So look at that phrase, grievous evil. It's in verse 13 and here in verse 16. It's a really unique phrase and it grabs our attention that the preacher uses here. This word grievous, what it really means, it means to be sick or weak. It's this idea here in our text of an evil that's diseased or infected. It's a sickly evil. It's sickly to yourself and to others. And that's in two verses right in this text, verse 13 and verse 16. In verse 13, it's a grievous evil that the more riches you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. And then in verse 16, the preacher says it's a grievous evil that no matter how much you have, no matter how much, you can't take it with you. It's a grievous evil, according to Ecclesiastes. So in verses 8 through 20 here in chapter, in chapter 5, we see that power and wealth are vanity because they can never really satisfy us. So we want to ask of our text, well, why is that? 
Why don't power and wealth satisfy us? Why are they just a vapor that we can't really sink our teeth into? And it's really because wealth and power themselves are never satisfied. It's like the stomach of wealth and power are a bottomless pit. Its eyes are bigger than its stomach. Think about it for a minute. Money, right? So money is many things. It's inherently fleeting. It's temporary. It's changing. It's consuming. Money can be gained and money can be lost. Money's impacted by inflation. Money can be stolen. Money changes day by day with the marketplace all around the world. Money is fleeting. It isn't inherently good or inherently bad, but it's a thing and it doesn't really have any substance to it. By its very nature, money itself can't be satisfied. Its stomach is a bottomless pit. So power and wealth are never satisfied. They're not designed to be. They can't be. And again, why is that, preacher of Ecclesiastes? Well, let's let Solomon's dad, King David, help shed some light on this. So back in Psalm chapter 115, King David gives us a clue. Psalm 115 says the nation's idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Then listen to how King David, how he describes these idols of silver and gold, the idols of wealth and power. Psalm 115 verses 5 through 8, I'll read it for us. They, the idols, have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So the curse of idols, of silver and gold, of wealth and power, is that we become like what we worship. And what do we just see about money and power? They're not really a thing. You're becoming like this thing that can't be satisfied. So money and power become an idol to us when we look to them for our security, for our satisfaction, for our identity, and our significance that only God can give us. Money is so alluring, especially in our time and place and in our culture. Money is so alluring because of what we think it promises us. Think of all the things you're told by marketing that money and stuff is going to give you, right? A lot of resources is spent to market things to you, to sell you this promise of money. But when you really think about it, what's the end game? Money always overpromises and underdelivers. Always, no matter how much you have. Power and money are vanity because there is never enough to satisfy them. Tim Keller once said, money isn't an idol, it just shows us where our idols are. Ouch. The vanity of power and wealth is that they can't satisfy you. Remember we're in chapter 5, verses 8 through 20, power and wealth can't satisfy you. And as you pursue and toil after money to provide for the idols of your heart, idols like comfort, idols like security, idols that are sacrificed for every day in and around our city. Think about all the child sacrifice that happens for the idol of comfort, for the idol of security. 
You're becoming more and more like what you're worshiping, what you're trusting in. You're becoming more and more like money, consumed, empty, and fleeting. You become like what you worship because God's word, Solomon's dad, penned it in Psalm 115. You become like what you worship. So let your finger drift a little bit further down the text in chapter 5. Look at verse 19. We see, though, that power and money isn't really our ultimate problem. Yeah, pursuing wealth and power is like chasing after wind, but that's not really the problem underneath our problem. Look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil This is the gift of God. So wealth and power can be enjoyed when they're seen rightly for what they actually are, when they're seen as gifts from the giver. But they can never really satisfy the deep appetite inside of us. That's where the preacher of Ecclesiastes is taking us today. So why, if we're all kind of nodding our head, yeah, we know money and power don't satisfy us, then why do we seek after them? Why do we do that? Why do we really think in our heart of hearts they're going to satisfy us? Because the vanity of wealth and power, it goes deeper than just the reality that wealth and power as things can never be satisfied. Our problem is deeper than that. This brings us to our root problem and the second point in our text today. That's going to be chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And the second point of our message today is that appetite is never satisfied. So look with me at verses 1 through 9, and I want to highlight verse 3 for us. Verse 3 says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Here we see no matter how hashtag blessed you are, No matter how long you live, no matter how many kids you have, you're not going to be satisfied. Your soul is not ultimately satisfied with life's good things. Again, even the good things aren't going to satisfy you. In fact, the preacher here in verse 3, he uses really jarring and surprising and, and blunt, maybe even offensive language here. He says that a stillborn child is better off than the one whose soul is not satisfied. So when the preacher uses this language of stillborn here, he's speaking autobiographically, right? King Solomon's dad, King David, King David's first son with Bathsheba died. Their baby died. So Solomon knows the pain of a baby dying. He never knew who his older brother was going to be. So when Ecclesiastes uses this language, stillborn, when the Bible talks about pain and suffering, it's not detached from God's heart, right? That he's always near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. Solomon here, when he uses this word, he uses it for a reason. He knows the pain and the emptiness of a stillborn child, just like he knows the emptiness of power and wealth. So again, he's, he's using this. God's word is written for a reason. He's using the language in verse 3 to wake us up. It's like a smelling salt. To wake us up to the reality that our appetites are never really satisfied. No matter how long you live, 
you'll never be truly satisfied. So we have this problem of being satisfied. Time's not a variable that solves it. You could live for a thousand years. You're still going to not be satisfied. No amount of prosperity and no amount of time will give you real, lasting, and ultimate satisfaction. Again, think about the preacher of Ecclesiastes who's writing us here. Verse 3 makes us ask a question again, right? If we're thinking along with the text, well, why is this? So as is often the case with God's word, just let your finger drift a little bit further down to the text. Look with me at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And don't we all know what verse 7 is saying? But we try to push it away and ignore it. We try to distract ourselves or numb ourselves from this experience. But when we're really honest, are your desires ever really, fully, truly, consistently satisfied? In your heart of hearts, you know, Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, is right. Under the sun, in your pursuit of satisfaction, even when you pursue it with good things, like family and a long life, you're never really satisfied because it's like chasing after wind. It's a vapor. For whatever you're seeking satisfaction for under the sun here in Ecclesiastes, you inevitably feel hungry again. Your satisfaction doesn't last because your appetite isn't satisfied, no matter what you try to satisfy it with. So we're all looking for satisfaction, but our looking is not the answer, right? So we're all looking for satisfaction, whether you're looking inside of yourself, like all the Disney movies used to tell us, right? Or you're looking outside yourself, you're never going to find what's going to satisfy the deep desire of your appetite. This is what under the sun, Ecclesiastes, keeps beating this home for us here. Okay, we get the point, preacher. We can't be satisfied under the sun. So look further even again down in your text. Look at verse 9. Savor it a little bit. Where the appetite is described as wandering. And this is also vanity and a striving after wind. So what is the root of our satisfaction problem, of our wandering? Why do power and wealth not satisfy our appetite? So let's consider this in one way. So we're talking about power and wealth and our appetite. What's one way that our appetite manifests itself with power and wealth? So let's think about here for a little bit. Let's put the microscope on our hearts, and let's talk about greed. It's going to feel uncomfortable, but let's go there, okay? So think about greed for a minute. How many people admit they're greedy? Have you ever admitted that you're greedy? I admit I'm prideful, because I am. We often admit that we struggle with anger. Maybe even we admit that we struggle with lust, right? We admit these things, but how often do we admit that we're greedy? that our hearts seek after power and wealth to be satisfied. But again, remember in our first section, power and wealth, we become like them when we worship them. We're not aware of our greed because as we're seeking money to satisfy us, we're becoming more and more like the money, the curse of counterfeit gods of idols as you become like what you worship. So you're becoming like money. You're becoming numb and deaf and blind even as you're pursuing money to satisfy you. So we have a really hard time, if we're being really honest, admitting that we're greedy. And that's us here at Gresham Bible Church, let alone all of us under the sun. Because when we worship the idol of power and wealth, again, an idol that's inherently blind, deaf, and dumb, 
we become blind to the true nature of our appetites. We're okay talking about it a little bit, but when you try and go there and go deeper, let's not go there, right? It gets a little uncomfortable. However, our text today is bringing this to the surface, right? Because God is good and gracious. God's word is graciously and faithfully bringing this out for us to see. So it's, we're trying to look at what's the root of our satisfaction problem. We need to consider the reality that our appetites are never satisfied. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, it's like he's bringing us to the edge of this cliff, right? We're moving towards the end of chapter 6. We've heard this now for weeks and chapters. We get it, preacher. All of life is vain, right? Under the sun, what am I supposed to do with this? We're left wanting to know if there's actually an answer for our satisfaction problem, if there's actually a way forward from the vanity of wealth and power. So again, why do we seek satisfaction through power and wealth? I want to take us briefly to a different preacher later on in time by the name of Paul. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says that our appetite in relation to money, our appetite of greed and our appetite of coveting, the preacher Paul says, is idolatry. So our appetites are never satisfied because of our idolatry. Our appetites are hungry to be satisfied by idols. We worship other things for only what God can provide. This shows us the root problem Ecclesiastes is bringing to the surface here that it's pointing us to is that my heart and your heart worships idols. The root problem is inside of us, not just outside of us. So again, money itself isn't the root problem. If you come away from our time today hearing like, yeah, we heard from Ecclesiastes, money's the problem, down with money, you missed it. The problem's our hearts. The root problem is what our hearts want, right? It's a wanting problem. What we think power and money can give us when we believe their promises. We love money because we desire the satisfaction we think money can give us. The satisfaction we think money can provide. We want the security we think money can provide. We want the identity we think money can provide by the stuff money could give us so we're seen or perceived a certain way, have certain experiences. We want the significance that we feel money will provide. I'm more important because I have more money, because I drive this car, because I live in this neighborhood, because I wear these brands, right? Really, that's what we're seeking money to provide for us. But our idolatry shows the root problem is our hearts, because again, is the appetite of your heart really satisfied in those things? Maybe sometimes. I like getting a new pair of Nike shoes. I enjoy that but that's not uh, a satisfaction that lasts very long, right? Our appetites are greedy. We really act like we can be satisfied if only we had enough to control, right? Or enough to consume, then we're going to be satisfied. And money can provide that for us, we think. Or we think, I'm really going to be satisfied if only I had more time, right? Like this season of my life isn't satisfied, but only if I get to this next season, oh, then I'm really going to be satisfied. But our appetites are always hungry and thirsty, no matter what season of life you're in, no matter how much you have or experiences you're a part of. Your appetite is always hungry and thirsty. And then we think, really, we think like the salt water of power and money is going to quench the thirst, the appetite of our heart. But it doesn't. 
our appetites only get more and more dehydrated as we seek after the mirage of status and stuff. We just keep seeking after it. and We're getting more and more dehydrated drinking the salt water. Maybe Isaiah chapter 55 is on your mind. Isaiah 55 two says this. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So from our text today, we've seen the first part, chapter 5, verses 8 through 20, that power and wealth are never satisfied. Okay, so there's problem A. Second part, we just saw verses 1 through 9 in chapter 6. Second problem, the deeper problem is the appetite is never satisfied. So our text, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes is pressing this point we have a serious satisfaction problem. So this brings us to the third point of emphasis today in chapter 6. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. What will satisfy? The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Verse 12 is saying that only if you could know what comes after you, that would help you know what's good right now in your present, right? If only you could know what tomorrow would bring, today I could live more wisely or be satisfied. It's wanting to know what comes next to inform today. It's asking, the preacher's asking here, it's like he's desperate by the end of chapter 6, right? He's asking, is there anything that's not actually vain under the sun? He's asking, is there anyone who is good? Anyone who can tell me what will be after me? The end of verse 6 is bringing us to this point. It's like the preacher's questions that he's been walking us through. It's almost like he's been internalizing the questions at this point in time. It's bringing him to the edge, pressing him to long for something more, something more than just what's under the sun that all of this is vanity, right? His appetite, he can't get away from it. It has to be satisfied by something. His appetite here at the end of chapter 6, it's pointing him somewhere. It's like he's longing to be able to see outside the picture frame, outside the house like Josh preached to us a few weeks ago of Ecclesiastes. He can't help it here at the end of chapter 6. Verse 12 is pointing us, it's pointing us, let's let it do that, to our only solution for our satisfaction problem. Because our appetite is designed to only be satisfied by living under a different sun. Under this sun, everything is vain. Yet you still have your appetite. It's pointing you. The only way it's going to be satisfied is living under a different sun. Some of you are familiar with this. Michael Garland just quoted this in his blog post this past week. C.S. Lewis describes the satisfaction problem this way. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Wow. Doesn't that ring true in your life? That no experience you have, even the really good ones, lasts for very long. Your appetite still wants something. You're still not really, truly, deeply satisfied. And yet we keep living like we want our heaven now. If only I just go to get over that horizon to that next thing, then I'm really going to be satisfied. Our appetites, when you really think about it, when we're really being honest, like the theme and tone of Ecclesiastes, 
our appetites are broken. They're confused and disordered. Again, thinking that if we only had that next thing that money promises us, then we'd really be satisfied. But that next thing comes and you find yourself still wanting, maybe then wanting what's over that next horizon, still not satisfied. Could be, again, let's just be honest, could be that next income level. Could be that next house, that next accomplishment. Could be that next job. Could be that next relationship. Whatever it is, it's always something next and you're still not satisfied. And again, we keep chasing it because we're hardwired for satisfaction, just like the preacher here in Ecclesiastes. We want our heaven now, so we keep chasing the wind. We keep chasing it and trying to hold on to it, and we're still not satisfied. And again, a lot of these things we chase after aren't necessarily bad, so please don't misunderstand me. Vacations are awesome, so I'm not saying vacations are bad. I'm not saying having lots of kids is bad. I'm not saying that next new job is bad. Money in and of itself isn't inherently bad. What's bad is what we try to seek to satisfy the deep appetite of our heart. So all of this, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, he's just peeling back the curtain, right? He's doing an autopsy on our appetites. And he's saying that when you peel it all back, the true nature of our idol-worshiping hearts is the root problem. What he's talking about here is our sin. Our appetites work and strive as if power and wealth and what they think, what we think they can give us will really satisfy us. But they don't. They can't. We saw in the first part, they're not designed that way. They're bottomless pits. And then your heart can never be satisfied by power and wealth. Because like C.S. Lewis said again, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Everything under the sun is vanity. You were made to live and to be satisfied under a true and better sun. Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, is clearly and compelling, pressing this point to us that all is vanity under the sun. I think by this point in time in Ecclesiastes, I hope like that's clicked inside of you, that it really truly is all vanity. It's like the preacher He's just keeps beating this drum. He's meticulously deconstructing our appetites. And here in our text today, he's doing it towards our heart's relationship with power and money, with wealth, right? The preacher is showing us that these things, even the good things, aren't strong enough, they're not long-lasting enough, and they're not satisfying enough to really bear the weight of your appetite the appetite that you can't get away from, that you always have. So in this closed system under the sun, right, in Ecclesiastes, we're under the sun, the preacher tells us, with our appetites that seek deep satisfaction in what money provides, we're just left. What do we do with this? This is vanity. But here again at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, the preacher is pointing us to the only solution for our satisfaction problem. I hope you're feeling me today that all of us have this satisfaction problem. Regarding our propensity to love money, just two quick verses in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 warns us, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So again, the preacher of the New Testament, 
Paul's letter to Timothy, he describes our love of money as a craving. Again, the problem's our appetite. Or in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Doesn't that sound a lot like the preacher of Ecclesiastes? Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Is that easy to do? So how do we keep our lives free from the love of money, this craving that's only going to disappoint you and leave you not satisfied? How do we not love money and what we think it promises us? How do we have healthy and ordered appetites? Again, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, you have this appetite, you can't detach yourself from it, you have it, what do you do with this? So at its core, when we love money, we're really showing that we don't believe God is generous. Because if you did, why would you be seeking what power and money are promising you to deliver? Because when you love money, it shows in your heart, I really believe when I'm in that space, I really believe money's going to satisfy me more than God. Whatever's money is promising me that I can have next, my heart is functioning like I really think I need that more than God. But when we really see and taste just how generous God is, that reorients our hearts to love God more than money. Our satisfaction, Ecclesiastes is just pressing this point, our satisfaction is a belief problem, right? We have a satisfaction problem and it's a belief problem. So practically, the motives and desires of our hearts, again, show us that we don't believe God is generous. So it's it's like this. We seek after money and power to satisfy us because we're really acting like we don't believe God is generous. So it's like we think that God is stingy. Like maybe you feel like God is your uncle who's really stingy, who lives just on coupons. You think that God's like that, that he doesn't really have enough in his budget to be good to you and to be gracious to you. He only has so much to give. And since he doesn't really have enough to give, I'm going to seek after money to give me what I think God can't. We don't believe God is generous when we're seeking after power and wealth to satisfy us. But consider with me briefly, what does the gospel show us about how generous God is? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, and let this just sink in. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So in the person and work of King Jesus, the full generosity of God the giver is on display. Though Jesus the King was rich, What does 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tell us? Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So for your sake, for my sake, for you who seeks to satisfy your appetite with money, King Jesus lived the perfect life you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die as an idol worshiper. King Jesus became poor so that you as an idol worshiper might be forgiven, and might be made rich. Jesus really is that good. Jesus is really that generous. 
King Jesus lived and died under this son and then conquered death so that you could have life everlasting, so that you might know him and be satisfied with God's amazing and everlasting grace. When you've tasted of this kind of love, of this kind of supernatural generosity, you can love God more than money because you're more satisfied with Jesus than the idols, the idols that you think money can get you. The idols don't compare when you compare them to the generosity of God, to the goodness of Jesus. And again, okay, what does that mean for money? And I think I need a little more money to get a new car because my car broke down. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying money is run from money. We need some money under the sun, right? But you don't necessarily, when you see the generosity of God in the gospel, you don't necessarily love other things less. You love God more. So then when you go have an amazing meal, you can love that meal. Praise God for your taste buds, for the creativity who made that meal, and it becomes worship because you love God more, okay? I don't want us to get it twisted. And the reason why is because you've tasted of a superior satisfaction of who God is. All right, and as we close, so for the Christian, one day we will live forever and ever under a better sun. When we live under, what we're going to live under is none other than the glory of God and the light of Jesus, the Son of God himself, when Jesus is the lamp of the new heavens and new earth. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 describes that day like this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So why does Jesus really satisfy? That's what I want us to have taken away from this message today from Ecclesiastes. Why does Jesus satisfy? The preacher's coming to the end of chapter 6 here. He's looking outside the frame of Ecclesiastes. There has to be something. Why does Jesus satisfy? Well, first, Jesus isn't just the next option on your quest for satisfaction. He's just not the next thing you can get or consume in your search for satisfaction. Jesus is the only solution for your satisfaction problem. Only Jesus solved the actual nature of the problem in your heart with your appetites, and only Jesus is glorious enough to satisfy your heart's appetite for all of eternity, okay? So we've seen three things from our text today. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through the end of 6. First, power and wealth are never satisfied. Second, the appetite is never satisfied. And then what will satisfy at the end of chapter 6? So in closing, just as I've been preparing this message, thinking about us and hearing this and what God's word has done in my heart, um, two things. Maybe you're a Christian who hasn't actually felt satisfied in a really long time. If Ecclesiastes, the honesty of Ecclesiastes is resonating with the honesty of your heart. Maybe you haven't actually felt satisfied as a Christian in a long time. Or maybe you're here or in the sound of our voice here today and you're not a Christian. You don't know Jesus. If that's you, first, I'm glad you're here. And if you're really being honest like Ecclesiastes is being again, maybe you haven't ever really tasted a satisfaction like we've been exploring here today. For all of us, let me encourage us, this text should do something in us. We don't just hear this word preached and then leave here. Okay, it should do something. So I want to encourage us to confess and repent 
of seeking satisfaction and power and wealth. We all do it, okay? Whether we want to admit it or not, we all do it. Then turn to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and to give you a heart to love him more than what money promises. Only in Jesus will you ever be truly satisfied and never disappointed. Money will pass away and it didn't sacrifice itself for you. Jesus sacrificed himself for you so that you can be satisfied with him, in him, from today into eternity. So the purpose of my heart's deep appetite, of your heart's deep appetite, is to point you somewhere. It's to point you to the all-satisfying one. Our satisfaction problem has a satisfying solution, and his name is Jesus. So let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that your word never returns void, that it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. We praise you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. Lord, we pray that you will increase our trust in you, in your goodness and generosity that you've proven for all time through the cross and the empty tomb. Deepen our love for you, and may we treasure your faithful goodness more than the idols around us. Father, may we not shift from the sure hope of the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.